0: Well, there are many who claim Christianity as their religion, and yet they do not have Christ as the core of their hearts and lives. They adopt the practices of Christianity. You'll see them at church even. Maybe they say they pray. And on a survey, if they're asked what their religion is, they'll say Christian. But in their heart of hearts at the core of their lives Christ is not their greatest concern someone once said that religion without Christ is a lamp without oil religion without Christ is a lamp without oil it might look like a lamp it might look great there on the shelf and people might think it looks it's a lamp from the outside but it has no power. There's no life. It never comes alive. And so, too, those, there are those who may have an outward form of religion. that, from those looking on might say, oh, yeah, you're, you're a Christian. You go to church, don't you? But the inward reality is gone. There's nothing there to come alive. And this is what is often called going through the motions, right? We speak that way. We hear of others doing that, going through the motions. People do it all the time with religion. But for those who are true disciples of Jesus Christ, those who have placed their faith in Christ and repented of their sin, they have oil in their lamp at all times. That oil might run low, but that oil is always there. Of course, they never love Christ perfectly, but there's always a flickering of a desire that sits deep within their souls that they want Christ, and they want to put their gaze upon Him, and when their gaze has not been on Christ, it's sad to them, and they mourn over that because Christ, at the core of them, is the center of their life and soul. In our passage today, we're going to see Jesus make a case for why he should be the center of every single person's life. And so I begin by asking you a simple question this morning. Is Jesus the center of your life? Is your heart set upon Christ in an ultimate sort of way, not just in a a once-a-week sort of thing, not just in a, as they say, fire assurance sort of way, to go check I've dealt with my eternal destiny and now I can live how I want. But is Christ the center of your life every day? Is that the the desire of your heart? I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 5, if you're not there already, to turn to the gospel of Luke chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 33 to 39 this morning. Verses 33 to 39, passage that you're Bible may uh, give the subtitle of a question about fasting, a question about fasting. This is a, an account that is recorded in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I got to catch myself there. I used to, used to put them all together. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. And therefore, you know, some of the, each of these kind of bring their own flavor to describing the life of Jesus, but those accounts, those things in which they all align on, it, it, it's clear that the, each one saw that it was important to include it, and, and so therefore, this is a, an important passage for us to consider this morning. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through the end of the chapter. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does... And so with that, in these few verses this morning, we are going to see Jesus and his message challenge us. His, he and or his message will challenge us in two significant ways so that we would set our hearts upon Christ alone. Jesus wants to be the center of your life. And so he challenges the people in his day and by extension us as we study this passage together, two significant ways Jesus will challenge us. First of all, Jesus challenges our view of fasting. Jesus challenges our view of fasting. Now I have to say, I have not heard many sermons on fasting. It is uh, something that is uh, found throughout church history, uh, found throughout the Bible, and yet, uh, in some senses, it's not spoken of that often, and therefore there often aren't that many sermons on fasting. So there's much for us to learn here today as we look at Jesus mentioning this practice. Now as we come to these verses, verse 33, it's kind of jumping into the middle of something that's already going. That's the sense that Luke provides for us, right? It says, and they said to him. It's like it's continuing on a part of a narrative that's already been going on. As we know uh, in the previous passage, is where Jesus calls Levi, a.k.a. Matthew, uh, to be his disciple. And Matthew leaves everything and follows after Jesus. In that process, he's ecstatic that he is, is a disciple of the Messiah, and so he throws a huge party and invites all of his friends who are all notorious sinners and the low life of Jewish society. And so they're having a great time. They're having a huge party. They, these people who are normally avoided by the religious establishment are, being, uh, are getting to know Jesus, this great rabbi and teacher, and they're shocked. And, but they weren't the only ones shocked. The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious establishment saw it and were greatly disturbed. And so they confront Jesus, actually go to his disciples, and Jesus steps in to, to answer. But here... In verse 33, they continue the attack. They continue the controversy. They're continually perturbed at what Jesus is doing and his disciples. Now, we don't know how much time passed between verse 32 and verse 33. Some like to say that it was uh, maybe even the next day. Uh, Luke seems to indicate it was fairly, fairly close together, as do the other gospels. But here we have in verse 33, it says, They said to him... Now, the him we know is Jesus, because he's the one who just spoke in verses 31 and 32. But the they has some debate, because if you compare this passage with the other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, uh, we kind of get a different account. If you read simply straight through Luke here, you'd think it was the Pharisees and the scribes that were approaching Jesus and asking this question. And it says in verse 33, the disciples of John and and the disciples of the Pharisees, so they're clearly involved here. But the Gospel of Matthew records that it was actually John's disciples that went and spoke these things to Jesus. And Mark has still a third description. He indicates that both John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples have been fasting, and then it says, and they said to Jesus. So therefore, it could have been both the groups of disciples. I think piecing these together, they're all different perspectives of the same event, and they can all fit together well. Basically, I believe that both the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees uh, recognize that they have something in common that differed from the disciples of Jesus. They fasted, Jesus' disciples didn't. And so they have a a bit of talking behind the scenes, and they decide to go to talk to Jesus. And it's very possible that uh, the disciples of the Pharisees, who are beginning to be more perturbed at Jesus, whereas the disciples of John were probably a little more predisposed to be kind towards Jesus and looked to be on Jesus' side because of the, their leader, John the Baptist, was a, a forerunner of Jesus. And so the Pharisees may have been seeking to win the disciples of John to their side and, say, and get them kind of disrupted at what Jesus and his disciples were doing. So they go, two groups of disciples, and I think based upon Matthew's account that the ones who actually speak up are probably the disciples of John, but very well instigated by the disciples of the Pharisees. And they say, this is the message that they bring to Jesus. They say the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. These disciples have an issue with how Jesus and his disciples have handled fasting. Now, this is strange for us today. It's not often that we're confronting one another about how our fasts are going, right, or, or how regularly we fast. And so it's not a regular topic of conversation among Christians as a, as a, uh, a regular thing you're going to hear at a small group, per se. But fasting was a major part of religious life for, for the Jews in the first century. And we've got to understand this if we're going to understand where these disciples are coming from. Fasting had a rich history in Judaism and was highly, a highly regarded act of worship. Fasting in the Bible, as uh, no doubt you know, is simply temporarily refraining from food for a spiritual purpose. Temporarily refraining from food for a spiritual purpose. Now, as we'll talk about later, I believe that there's ways in which we can fast today that may not necessarily include food, maybe fasting from something else, and particularly there may be uh, people and even here that uh, aren't able for health reasons to step away from food for any length of time. But every time we see fasting in the Bible, it's fasting from food. Now, you think that based upon the fasting that we, the, the concern that's here, you think that fasting would be mandated all throughout the Old Testament and that they're trying to call Jesus' disciples on an issue of the law. But that's not the case. Actually, There's only one fast commanded in the law, and that is on the Day of Atonement, as their sins were being forgiven in Leviticus 16, Israel was to fast. And so this is the only time that Israel was commanded to refrain from food. But we see fasts recorded throughout the Old Testament. We see uh, them offered often for penitence and contrition over sin. There's a, there's a brokenness, a desire for forgiveness, a recognition that their way has strayed from the Lord, and so they, they go and they, and they pray, and they refrain from food to help help intensify those prayers. After the exile, we see that four day-long fasts were held to recall the destruction of Jerusalem laid out in Zechariah. But as we can see here in verse 33, that prayer in Fasting are linked, right? The disciples of John says, "Fast often and offer prayers." It was a regular part of their religious life that they they went and sought to offer prayers and to fast. And so, from these Old Testament precedents, the Pharisees had had set up a, a system of, of of fasting in which they fasted twice a week. So you go from one commanded once a year to some other. Off ones to now the Pharisees say we're doing this twice. It was car- days, and you'll remember uh, later on in Luke chapter 18 where you have the parable of, of the Pharisee who's praying and the tax collector who's praying, and the tax, uh, the Pharisee says, "Thank you, God, that I'm not like that tax collector over there." And in that prayer, he's telling God all of his good and righteous deeds, one of which is that he fasts twice a week. It seems that John's disciples followed if not the same pattern, a very similar one. And again, it was was a sign of the religiously fervent and pious believers in that time. And so John's disciples are religiously fervent and pious, and so they're, they're adopting the ways in which Judaism has told them to be pious before the Lord. Now John the Baptist himself was known for his austerity, for his ascetic practices, Luke 7.33 says he refrained from from eating and drinking. And so it seems that the men who followed him carried the same level of solemnity. Now, there were two reasons why Jesus and his disciples drew the irksome glance of the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees. And it's two sides of the same coin. The first is they didn't fast, right? They didn't fast. And secondly, they feasted. So not only were they not doing the normal religious thing, but they had substituted the religious practice with a taboo practice. Not only feasting, but as we know in the prior account, feasting with sinners. And so this, this party at Matthew's house was exhibit A for this accusation. No doubt they had heard of it or whatever, and, and, and then they saw it there blatant in front of them. In fact, I think it's very possible that the day that Levi, Matthew, held this feast was one of the fasting days. And so the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees are in the midst of their fast and as we uh, read in Matthew chapter six, Jesus condemns the Pharisees because they would, they would put on a gloomy face and they would look grubby so that they could show that they were deeply penitent. And so everyone knew that they were fasting that day because they had put on this show. And so no doubt the, the, the disciples of the Pharisees, they were putting on their show that look, I'm fasting and disciples of John, okay, they're fasting. And then they happen to hear this shouting and this carousing and and laughter, and they look over and they go, hey, that's that's Jesus. That's that new teacher. And look at his disciples. And and they're not fasting. I mean, they were they were angry, disturbed. He couldn't believe that, that Jesus' disciples were were failing to partake in this religious ritual and that he was having a scrumptious feast with notorious sinners. And so they confront Jesus. Ask, they make a statement here that demands an answer. And Jesus does reply. Verse 34, look at it. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus instantly goes into a metaphor, an illustration with a wedding. The question here is uh, Jesus isn't actually looking for an answer. It's a rhetorical question. It's, it is in the Greek, it, it assumes a negative answer. You know that just from the way that it's written. A wedding in first century Israel would have lasted a week long. It was a seven-day wedding celebration period. It was meant to be a party for a week long. And so the rabbis even taught, who did, who tw- fasted you know, twice a week, they, they, they still said, listen, you're not allowed to fast during a wedding. That normal rhythm of fasting needs to go on hold because during the wedding, we eat. And during the wedding, we feast and we party. And so Jesus brings that illustration here to speak of fasting. The wedding was a time of joy and celebration while fasting was a time of sorrow and seriousness. And so Jesus says it'd be inappropriate for his disciples to fast while a wedding's going on. I mean, he's basically announcing Listen, guys, there's a wedding going on. There's a big party that's supposed to be happening right now, and you're missing out. You don't know that there's this wedding party going on. My disciples know it, but you don't. And while this wedding's going on, fasting is not going to be happening. Now, it's important to note here that even though Jesus is basically saying, listen, my disciples don't fast, he's not categorically against fasting. As I referenced Matthew chapter 6 and during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives actually instruction he says the Pharisees fast this way but you should fast this way rather than putting on a show for others to see you and give you kudos for your great spiritual deeds you should not put on a gloomy face and make yourself look all drubby and so that you're, you 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 uh, incite the or welcome the the kudos of of your friends rather you should get up and make it like a normal day wash your face be clean and go about your day because your father who sees in secret will reward you in secret. And so Jesus actually gives teaching and instruction on fasting. Here in verse 34, though, the point of the illustration is this. Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus makes all the difference. Why do these disciples fast but Jesus don't? It's because of Jesus. And that's what he says, he focuses on the bridegroom. He doesn't just say that there's a party going on, he says that the bridegroom is here, and that's how we know that there's a wedding feast going on. And Jesus is that bridegroom. His physical presence changed fasting, is Jesus' point. And by implication, he's saying that no one in Israel Should be fasting at this time because the bridegroom is with them. There should be no Jews that are fasting because he is here. Now, for the Jews of the first century, again, we might think this is just an illustration, but for the Jews of the first century who knew their Old Testament, they knew that when Jesus mentioned the bridegroom, he was pulling in prophetic references to the Messiah. And that in the Old Testament, Speaking of a future day and future time, God identified himself as the groom of Israel who would restore the fortunes of Israel in the coming kingdom. So bridegroom instantly flags in their minds future kingdom, God coming to marry himself to Israel. Look at uh, Isaiah 62, verse five. It says this, "'As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride,' so shall your God rejoice over you. God is the bridegroom of Israel. Or Hosea, chapter 2. You guys know the story of Hosea, the prophet who was commanded to go and to marry a prostitute in order to be an illustration to the people of Israel that just as God married Israel who was unfaithful, so Hosea would marry an unfaithful wife. But this is what God says to Israel in Hosea 2, verses 19 through 20, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. In addition to this, the Old Testament prophets spoke about the future kingdom of God as the time of feasting. Again, we're pulling together bridegroom, wedding, and feasting. Isaiah 25, verse 6 says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. This is going to be the best feast ever in that future kingdom of the Lord. And so Jesus by speaking about the bridegroom being present and talking about a feast was bringing all of these, all those hopes of Israel, all those expectations down and saying, listen, I am he. I am the one that you have hoped for. I am here to bring about the kingdom. It is at hand if you would but repent and turn to me in faith. It says, uh, Alva J. McLean, in his monumental work, The Greatness of the Kingdom, He stated that Jesus' statement here in verse 34 is both startling and highly significant. Here, Jesus declares that he is that divine bridegroom, meaning that the long-promised kingdom was at hand, and in his presence, for those who acknowledged him, it was time for great rejoicing and feasting. Indeed, as Isaiah 54 verse 1 says, they should break forth into singing. The disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees upon hearing this should have broke forth in singing that God has come. The bridegroom is here. John the Baptist understood that Jesus was the bridegroom. We don't have time to turn there, but John chapter 3 verse 28 through 30, you can write it down. John chapter 3 verse 28 through 30, Jesus calls John calls Jesus the bridegroom. John knew what was going on. Apparently his disciples were a little slow to to catch on, and and we can give them credit, their their leader was in prison, so they weren't quite able to get the regular teaching uh, because John was in prison. But Jesus himself, get this, Jesus himself was the reason for joy and celebration. While he was physically present, his disciples would not fast, but they would feast. But Jesus doesn't stop there, right? Right? Look at verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Then they will fast in those days. In verse 35, Jesus describes a future time when his disciples will fast. The time will come when he, the bridegroom, will be taken away. And this statement refers to the sudden removal of the bridegroom from the midst. And I believe this is an early indication in the mouth of Jesus that he knew his life would come to an early end, an early death. Jesus has the cross in his mind here, when he will be taken away, when the wedding will come to an end, and, and, and it's, a, it's a sorrowful time. That's when fasting will be there. I mean, just think of a, of a week-long wedding, and, and then at some point the bridegroom is taken away, captured, killed, and now the party just ceases. What kind of sadness would result from the bride, for the wedding guests, for a bridegroom to be ripped out of this wedding celebration? And so it's with this sadness Jesus predicts that his disciples will one day fast. Currently, he says it's time for rejoicing, but there will come a day when sadness will be the order of the day, After his death, especially, we know that between his death and his resurrection, there was great sadness among the disciples. Not sure what had happened and what was going to happen. But even uh, after he was ascended, there is a sense in which he is not here. And this is where it has implications for us, right? Is Jesus with us today? Well, yes and no, right? Yes and no. Jesus is spiritually present with us. He said, before he ascended into heaven, he said, Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age, Matthew 28. He's with us. We reflected upon that last week. But remember, this was spoken just before he ascended into heaven. So there's a sense in which he's with us to the end of the age, but physically he's not. He's ascended. He's not on this earth physically in his bodily form right now. And so I believe that this statement of Jesus in verse 35 applies to us today that the bridegroom has been taken away and that that feasting time of that great kingdom of the Messiah is still to come. That feast will happen one day and for all of who have trusted in Christ will be able to participate in that great feast when the bridegroom will be with his bride. But the bridegroom is taken away. Therefore, Jesus says his disciples will Fast. Now, it presents an interesting thing for us, the church today, right? Fasting's never commanded in the Bible. There's never, there's never an imperative that gives us and says, fast, Christian. Which I think is why we can more easily avoid it. But we see throughout the Old Testament that it's, it's exampled. Uh, Daniel, in Daniel 9, he fasts. I mean, you go through the the, the Old Testament, you see saints fasting. Uh, the, the, in the book of Acts, the New Testament fasted. Acts 13, they are setting apart Paul and Barnabas to go on the first missionary journey, and they pray and they fast. Acts 14, 23, they're setting up elders in every city, and it says with prayer and fasting, they set up these elders in each of these churches in these cities. But it's interesting that in the epistles, once you leave Acts behind, fasting is... Non existent. And with that said, we need to understand what Christian fasting is. And we don't have time to go all into it. I'm going to recommend some books to you if you would like more information to dive deeper on what Christian fasting is. I just want to give us a broad overview this morning to help us think about it for ourselves in our day. Christian fasting is a voluntary, get that, voluntary practice for a spiritual purpose. A voluntary practice of temporarily refraining from food for a spiritual purpose. Fasting today has gotten popular in the health world, right? All this intermittent fasting stuff. Uh, But that's not what we're talking about. You can do that, and that's fine. There's no, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that's not what the Bible talks about when it's talking about fasting. You could combine them, I guess. But, um, But the point is, when you fast, uh, for the sake uh, of what the Bible's talking about, that there's a, a spiritual intentionality for why you were refraining from food. There's a purpose. John Piper, in his book, Hunger for God, helps us here. He says, Christian fasting at its root is the hunger for a homesickness of God. Let me read that again. Christian fasting at its root is the hunger for for a homesickness of God. This means we will do anything and go without anything if by any means we might protect ourselves from the deadening effects of innocent delights and preserve the sweet longings of our homesickness for God. There's a desire for the Lord that is meant to supersede all the other desires in this life. And fasting helps us to intensify that desire. Helps us to intensify it. I mean, even as he talks about here, right, this homesickness for God, we got to ask ourselves, do we have that homesickness for God? Do we have that longing, that hunger for him? Are we just satisfied? Oh, yeah, we know him. Or is there a desire to know him more at a deeper level? Does it drive us? To, to forego things, to drive us to do anything that we might know God in a deeper way. This is what fasting is supposed to help us with. Piper goes on, he goes on to describe how uh, the things, um, most often the things that keep us from those deep longings and desires for God are not evil things. Yes, there might be great sin in our life that we need to lay aside, but oftentimes the things that keep us from that deep deep, Desire and, and desperate longing for God are not the blatant evil things but the good things that we 've allowed to creep in and to dominate our lives. things like food, right friends we need food, God designed us to be dependent upon food, and yet food can numb our spiritual senses. We feel that longing and 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 we cover it up with a snack right we're, we're We're body and soul. We're all mixed together. We can't just go, oh, that's physical and has nothing to do with my spiritual life. That's one of the things that, that fasting brings out is that we're we're it's all connected. And and refraining from eating food can help us. The point is that as we feel the hunger for the food, and again, if your medical situations allow you to refrain from food, it could be refraining from something else, something that has such a dominating pull in your life, it could be device it could be tv could be different things like that can fast from those things but you feel the pain the longing particularly that food not having food brings right that pain in your stomach is meant to remind us that this is the kind of hunger and longing we should have for god it's 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 bringing a physical that pain reminder we want god this much we want god this much we must hunger for him and that's why it's paired with prayer that we, feel those, that, that we feel that pain and we, and we go to our knees and we cry out to God. And so as we talk about fasting, I don't know what your experience is with it. Some of you might do, it, spirit, do spiritual fasting on a regular basis. This might be a regular habit of your Christian life. My guess is, though, that for most 21st century American Christians, fasting is something that we might know about and heard about at some time, but we don't practice on a regular basis but we need to realize that it's not just for the spiritual elite. It's not just for some monks somewhere. It is for us in the midst of our daily busy lives to help us to cultivate longings for God. It's a tool. John Piper writes this. He said, it, being fasting, is a faithful enemy of fatal bondage to innocent things. It is the physical exclamation point at the end of the sentence, this much, O God, I long for you and for the manifestation of your glory in the world. We've got to have that kind of longing. He says it's the exclamation point. At the end of that sentence, we go, this much, O God, this much, so much that I'm going to forego a meal. I'm going to forego several meals because I want you. I want to see your glory manifested. Fasting, like prayer, does not change God. God's purposes are immutable. But fasting changes us. Prayer changes us. And so as I look at Jesus' words, he says, when the bridegroom is taken away, my disciples will fast. And I just go, am I, the bridegroom's taken away. Am I fasting? I've done it. It's been part of, it's not a regular part of my Christian life. I'm, I'm convicted by Jesus' words here. It's not something that I've worked into my life. And for any of those you who have tried, right, you can uh, go for part of the day and then someone says, hey, you want to go to lunch? And you go, yeah, sure. <laughs> right, and like, oh, there goes the fast. Um, it requires work and discipline simply to forego one meal, to forego a few meals. But at the core of it, i got to ask myself, do I really hunger for God in these ways? Do I want Him? See, fasting reveals what's in our hearts. It's in those moments of hunger and, and want that, that we get cranky, right? Hangry is a thing, right? And, and that, that hangriness shows that there's something in our hearts that we satisfy with food. That we satisfy with food. Again, there's health issues and I'm not negating all of that, but we've got to realize that when we pull back on some of these things that we just live with, we realize What's really there? Is it my pride? What's going to come to the surface? My irritability, my discontentedness? Fasting is uncomfortable physically. It's uncomfortable spiritually. We're, we've got a hungry stomach, we bat down to pray, and we, our minds going all that. we just keep thinking, "Pizza, pizza, pizza." right? We, we're like, "Oh, no, I'm supposed to be praying." OK, And it, it's a battle, it's a struggle. It's, it's uncomfortable. And yet, the testimony of Christians through the ages is that they have fasted in many different times and seasons. Again, we aren't commanded to fast, but we're encouraged to do so. Now, there might be several different reasons to fast, and in order to help you uh, think about fasting in your, your life, I'd like to give you 10 biblical reasons why you might choose to fast. These are from Donald Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, and these are biblical categories. He's pulled from the Word. We don't have time to look at all of the, uh, the verses surrounding these this morning. I'm just going to give you the list and, uh, and might prompt you to think about a season, a time, a day, maybe once a week, maybe once a month, maybe once a year that you might set aside for, for prayer and fasting. Again, this is not legalism. This is not to gain God's favor and attention. This is simply to plead with God. The first reason, to strengthen prayer. Fastings united prayer. We we go to God. We're seeking God as we fast. And so we do it to strengthen our prayer life. Sometimes we don't set aside time to pray, but maybe you can set aside some time, a a lunch period that you normally spend time eating food. Now you've got a half hour, hour that you can set aside praying to be able to give some time to devoted prayer that you haven't given in quite some time. Secondly, to seek God's guidance. Seek God's guidance. Maybe there's a big decision that you have. The testimony of the scriptures as well as through uh, the ages is that when Christians are, are, don't know the will of God and are, and are and eagerly to know what it might be, they spend a time of prayer and fasting that God might make the, the, his way clear. Maybe that is a reason that you may need to fast and pray. Third, to express grief. This can be grief over a sin, maybe a, a wayward child, maybe sin in your own life. Maybe grief over the loss of someone and there's just a time in which you're, through prayer and grief, you bring that sadness and that grief to the Lord, seeking Him in the midst of your grief. Number four, seek deliverance or protection. We see this in the scriptures as well, that when the enemies are attacking, when they're all around and there seems to be no way out, they seek God. They they pray and fast for, for the Lord's protection. Fifth, to express repentance and return to God. This was often seen in the Old Testament that, that as Israel had strayed from the Lord, there was a call of a fast and prayer to come back to God, a, a time of mourning and weeping over their own sin in order to, in order to say, God, we want you this much. That we're, we're foregoing food this day because we all corporately together want to seek you. Number six, to humble oneself before God. Again, this is kind of all wrapped up in all of them, is to humble ourselves. Recognize our dependence. Recognize that we can't live without food. Recognize that we are, we are totally dependent upon God. Maybe you've been recognizing a, 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 an aspect of pride in your life in which you're just kind of living boastfully, content that you've got life handled and you haven't been acknowledging the Lord. Maybe you need a day and a period of humbling yourself before him, confessing that and just and just laying yourself out before him. Number seven, to express concern for the work of God. This is... Like uh, Nehemiah recognized that the walls of Jerusalem had fallen down and he was grieved that those, those walls were there and he, and he wanted to, to, to do something about it. Recognized that great work for God needed to be done. I mean, this can be missions efforts. This can be, be whatever we need, want to do for the Lord can be begun and sought after through prayer and fasting. Number eight, to minister to the needs of others. Maybe we need to set aside some time to be asking God how we might serve others around us. Be pleading, bearing one another's burdens so that we might help maybe a brother or sister battle temptation. And so we are willing to to fast and pray with them to help them to be able to overcome these things. Number nine, to overcome temptation and dedicate yourself to God. Maybe you are living and, and you've got your flesh is dominating you right now. You are living a defeated Christian life because you continue to give in to sin. May I suggest that maybe a fast for you to pull back and say, God, I want you this much. Please help me to break free from these things that claw up my soul, that I might know you and you alone. I want freedom, I want you. Say that to yourself and say that to the Lord through fasting. And finally, number 10, to express love and worship to God. Right, this is all about loving the bridegroom. We love him. And so we can do that through the discipline of fasting. The focus of our any fast should be upon God. It's not about our, our great Christian uh, duty that we're doing. God, look at me. That's what Jesus speaks against. It's not about us. It's not about pointing to us and getting kudos. It's about, all about putting our focus to God. We need to hunger for him. So I ask you, do you fast? Will you fast? Will you pray about it? Think about how God might use this practice of fasting because the bridegroom is not here, is he? We long for him. And so I just recommend the two books I quoted from is uh, Hunger for God by Piper and Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by by Whitney. Um, both are excellent books. Uh, spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life has one chapter on fasting along with lots of other spiritual disciplines. Hunger for God is all about prayer and fasting and I'd recommend both of those to you. So this morning, this passage, we see that Jesus challenges us to uh, to challenge our view of fasting and i know we just have a few minutes left i'm going to wrap up these last few verses with jesus challenges our view of religion it it, jesus finishes out with some some illustrations and parables here he talks about cloth he talks about wine and then he gives a proverbial statement in verse 39 and here's here's the point in these illustrations it's a contrast between the old and the new the old and the new and the old and the new do not mix together Jesus went from the specific topic of fasting and pulled back to this idea of religion, of of, of what system of belief are you following? Because listen, Pharisees and disciples of John, you can't continue to walk in the old ways of Judaism and adopt the new ways of my gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. My kingdom program does not mesh with old Judaism. They don't mix. You can't patch what i'm telling you onto the old system of judaism but what's important to see here is that jesus is not saying this that his ministry is incompatible with the old testament okay get this the old here i don't believe is the old testament the law i believe it has to do with judaism in its current form in that day Because Jesus says explicitly that his ministry, the gospel of the kingdom that he was proclaiming, was fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So everything, even as we talked about the bridegroom, right? All this is speaking of Jesus. So Jesus is not saying, listen, my ministry is incompatible with the Old Testament. He's saying it's incompatible with the current form of Judaism. MacArthur writes this. He says, the old garment in the Lord's illustration is the ritualistic, legalistic religion based on rabbinic tradition with its man-made regulations that obscured the law of God. Jesus did not come to patch that system, but to replace it with the garment of salvation, the good news of salvation by faith in him. See, folks, Jesus' way of salvation is totally different totally different from every single religion. And this is, in his day, it was old Judaism that was the false religion that he is comparing himself with. In our day, there are any number of religious paths that people take. But listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ, following after him, cannot mesh, cannot be synced up with and mixed with any other form of religious belief, any other worldview. Jesus is the only way and that must be held to firmly, especially by the church of Jesus Christ. There are not multiple roads up the mountain. They do not all lead to God. In fact, that very statement is ignorant of, ign- shows ignorance of all world religions, that all of them basically claim that they have the right road up the mountain. It's including Christianity. There's no name given on under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. It's only in Jesus Christ. Jesus was declaring that here, that they must accept him, the new wine, the new garment. That is where life is found, not in the old ways of Judaism. Folks, today, people want to add Jesus onto their life. They simply want to accept this old uh, way of doing things, their, their religi- religiosity. And think they can just add Jesus into their life. Jesus can't be added and mixed with anything. It must be full repudiation of the old and acceptance of him on his terms. And that goes for each one of us today. Everyone here in my voice, you, the call to you is for you to reject every other system of belief. Every other way of salvation. To reject trusting in your own righteousness. That's what was the problem with old Judaism. They believed they had a righteousness before God. And Jesus was saying, no, there's not righteousness found in obeying the law on your own, in your own self. Righteousness is found only in me. Repent of your sins. See that you are a sinner. You're not healthy spiritually. You're actually sick and and in need of a physician. And I am that physician. And I am that bridegroom. Without repenting. There is death. There is not finding a way up the mountain. Jesus predicts what their response was going to be. That's what he says in verse 39. He says, And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, ah, the old is good. He predicts that the Pharisees, the disciples of the Pharisees, are going to look at the new system and the old system and go, yeah, you know, Jesus, that's cute, that's nice, but no, the old is good. I kind of I like what I got. And the tragedy of someone seeing the new, all that Jesus offered as the bridegroom, and yet they reject it, content, happy with what they have. This is the lie of the enemy. This is the lie of Satan. And so I just ask you, what is the old? Some of you here that are listening to me have never given up the old. You've tried to add Jesus to your life. You've tried to, to take on some Christian practices but you haven't truly repented. You haven't truly rejected the old and, and clung to Jesus exclusively. Maybe you're hanging on to some of the Catholicism that you grew up with. Maybe you're trusting in the general good life that you've lived so far. Maybe you're proud of the good deeds that you've, you've done. Maybe you're thinking that there was an emotional experience you had at a church years ago and you're clinging to that as your hope and it guarantees that you're fine. But folks, Jesus is saying, you're not okay. Jesus doesn't mix with the old. We have to reject it all, abandon it all, and submit to Christ. And so I ask you, will you embrace Jesus this morning? Will you embrace the new? And say, I'm done with the past. God, I want you this much. I want you, Christ. You are the bridegroom. You are the fulfillment of all my desires. And set your hearts completely on him. May God direct our hearts in that way let's pray our father we confess that there are so many things in this life and in this world that tug at our attention that cause us to get distracted that our hearts are dull when when the name of christ is met, mentioned it, it doesn't excite us like it should forgive us lord forgive us for our dull affections half-hearted worship, for living lives that do not seek to to know you with all of our might and all of our energy. I pray this passage, Lord, you would help us to set our hearts on Christ, to recognize that he, although here in spirit, is not here physically, and we long for him to return. We long for him to be back, for us to see him face to face, and so we may we fast and long for him in these ways. Help us, Lord, set our hearts upon Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you all for your attention. Thank you for being here. And we trust that you will have a blessed week as we go and scatter, exalting in the name of Jesus wherever he sends us. God be with you. You're dismissed.